You're now listening to the Laravel Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Laravel Podcast Season 6. I'm one of your hosts, Matt Stauffer, and I got Taylor with me. You want to say hey? Hey, everybody. Uh, Taylor Otwell, the man, the myth, the legend, not the consigliere, because that would be more like Ian Lansman. I, f- I bet you there's got to be some kind of reference, some mobster reference to what what role you play. What's the oh, benevolent dictator for life? We're going to do that. BDFL, the BDFL yeah. of our of our little little world. So today we have had a request from friend of the pod and of the Laravel world, Justin Jackson, to to revisit an older podcast episode from the Laravel snippet from October 11th, 2019, which is wild to me because when I re-listened to that snippet, you were saying, oh, I'm just getting back from launching Vapor. And I was like, you're telling me Vapor launched four years ago? I feel like it was yeah. last year. This is wild to me. I need to yeah. go back. Do you know when, when Forge launched? Summer 2014, 2014 at Laracon in New York City. We are coming up on 10 years of Forge. Almost 10 years ago. Wow. That, I mean, yeah. that's 10 pretty crazy yeah. wrote the whole back end wrote the whole front end and bootstrap <laughs> wow you could even make minecraft servers yes i remember making WordPress. minecraft servers there's wordpress as well <laughs> although i think you brought wordpress back right so we still do have yeah. wordpress yeah yeah wordpress is wordpress is there that's wild minecraft servers on forge definitely yeah. gives you a sense of like we're just we're just figuring this thing out so almost yeah. 10 years of laravel llc the you know the business we got four years of Vapor. We also had Envoyer in the middle there. We've got some other paid products like Nova. And this episode four years ago, you said it was about choosing product ideas. And Justin was like, I know that people are always curious about that. And a little bit of backstory. I run a consultancy and we have a few small softwares and services, but consultancies have a lot of like an ebb and flow, you know, like I'm talking to listeners less than to Taylor, but like I could have my entire team book for the next six months and that's great for the next six months, but then six months from now, I got nothing, right? And so the, as a consultancy, we're constantly having to find more clients, more clients, more clients. And one of the dreams of a consultancy is recurring revenue. And one of the best ways to get recurring revenue is to have a SaaS product. So I have spent, I mean, I go to one of those conferences in, in Vegas. Microconf. I go to Microconf. I go to LessConf. I listen to all these podcasts about creating products, right? Like my brain lives in the creating product and I've never actually been able to do it like I mean, I've done it. We've got some little products, but never at the uh, the forge and you know and vapor That's level. Hard. And so, and I know there's a lot of people out there like me who are just saying, "Oh man, it would be the dream to have a SaaS." Whether it's somebody who's got a bigger company like me or somebody who's an independent founder. And so, that kind of the foundational concept of this this um, this episode was asking the question of how do you choose a product idea? And obviously, you led that one in your own, but I kind of kind of walk us through the same question. So, I mean, the baseline question is just like, hey, you, and in your original thing here, you said after selling $10 million worth of software, I began a mini series on launching successful software products. Well, I think it's been a lot more than 10 million now, but like, I would be the next Taylor, right? You know, okay, we've talked about open source packages, stuff like that. Let's say I would be the next Taylor, the businessman, and I'm a Laravel programmer who works in Laravel day by day. What, what does it look like for me to start the process of imagining, you know, how I can come up with my first SaaS? And, and I know there's other topics about how to actually build the thing. And you mentioned in your, your episode, like about building an audience. We talk about those too, if we have time, but like, let's talk about the product. Not only mm-hmm. can you get to give us like a baseline overview if somebody hasn't listened to that episode, but do you think your thinking has changed at all since then as well? No, I don't think it's changed. And from what I remember on that episode, and I should have gone back and listened to it. I well, think this is better this way. The core idea. I think the core idea of how I've always thought about building products is mainly solving my own problems. And I've said that many times. Um, yeah. So Forge, 
I was building servers by hand day in and day out to test various things with Laravel, make sure that things were working or to benchmark something on a real web server or whatever. I wanted to automate that. I put together some scripts to do that in a really, really ugly UI. And it kind of worked and felt good. It was like, hey, there's kind of something really convenient here. And I think I'll go ahead and build it out. And if nothing else, I will be the only user of this. And it will honestly make my life so much easier. Um, Yeah. And as I got deeper into it, it, you know, it became sort of more obvious that this actually, someone else is actually going to use this. I don't know how many people. I, I remember when I was building Forge, I told Abigail, my wife, I hope this just pays maybe our, our mortgage and our electric bill. And that would be great. And we just have some extra fun money on the side. Yeah. You know, many more people used it than I would have ever expected. And every product I've basically built since then has kind of been built in the same way. Um, on Voyeur, we needed to do zero downtime deployments without any downtime um, for our customers, yeah. solving our own needs there. Spark. Also, I never wanted to write all of that billing boilerplate ever again after working yeah. on Forge and on Voyeur. And so I built Spark so that for any future products, I would not have to do that. Yeah. The one thing that I think is kind of unique that I was maybe the only product I was actually pitched on building was Laravel Nova, who uh, David Hemphill and I actually partnered up on that, where he primarily wrote the front end, I primarily wrote the back end. And I like wasn't convinced of an admin panel for many, many years yeah. until, you know, he kind of, I think it was at Laracon, maybe in one of the New York Laracons, he was like, Taylor, you know, I really think there's something here with this admin panel. Let me show you this prototype I've built. And it was all written in Blade. Um, Currently, Mm -hmm. Nova's written with like Vue and Inertia and stuff. But this prototype was called Beam and it was written in Blade. And uh, it actually worked very similar to how Nova works today. And once I saw it, I was like, oh, wow, this, you do kind of have something here. But I, you know, it just took him sitting down and pitching it to me. And then we partnered on it. Yeah. Um, that's one of the only products where it wasn't wasn't really me solving my own problem. It was more yeah. like he had kind of pitched me one of the problems he was having. So yeah, I mean, I think, you know, not to ramble on about it, I think the core idea for me at least has always been solving my own problems. I feel like I'm a very typical developer with typical developer problems. And if yeah. I have an issue or a pain point that I'm running into, I feel like there's probably other people out there that have that pain. Yeah. And so um, that's super helpful. And one of the things I've been trying to compare it to is like, I get people pitching me pretty regularly saying, hey, I got this new product idea for the Laravel world. Do you think it's something that you're going to want to pay for? Or do you think it's something that people are going to pay for? And so I'm trying to imagine the difference between you doing that and those folks doing that. And I think one of them is that a lot of people are unwilling to build a thing purely for their own desire, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with this. They're only willing to build a thing if they think it's going to make a lot of money, which again, makes sense. It's a reasonable thing to do, but it's something I'm noticing different from you, at least with Forge. With Forge, you're like, I'm going to build this thing. And if nobody else use it, it's still worth the cost of building a thing. And I wonder if that makes it easier for you because A, you're using yourself as the target audience versus some imagined potential thing. Because you know, like that often saves us from all these like hyperbolic potentials. It's just like, no, I need this. I'm going to build this. But B, I wonder if that had an impact on your motivation. Do you feel like you still felt that way with other tools you built, like Ford, or like like Envoy and, and Vapor? Or was that really something unique to your first product? No, I think I felt the same way about all of the products 
for the most part. And honestly, like even let's just talk about this year, even things like Pulse, which is not a paid product, but I think still kind of applies. We want to build something that people use, obviously. Um, born totally out of our own needs at, at yeah. Forge and, you know, me kind of writing up this pitch in Basecamp of what I thought we needed and, and Jess and Tim going and working on it. And honestly, same thing. If no one else had ever used Pulse, yeah, great. Like we, we have it, yeah. it in production on Forge right now and we've identified, you know, kind of things that stick out to us, slow endpoints or, or whatever that we didn't actually realize we had and things nice. we need to dig into. Customers that are calling our APIs way more than seems reasonable. <laughs> like, you know, it just helped us surface some interesting things to dig into. That's awesome. But yeah, same thing. Laravel Pennant, you know, also released this year our feature flag package. Yeah. That's really an extraction of code we had already written in Forge to hmm. manage beta testing features and mainly that Tim had wrote um, feature flagging stuff that Tim had wrote in Forge is what I mean. Just yeah. extracting that into a package and again like just stuff that we needed you know that we found useful and I think we solve common problems here at Laravel um, Yeah, and you know people seem to keep finding them useful which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, I definitely think there's some elements of like how to approach it. And I also think that there's got to be some elements of you have some combination of a unique vision, a unique audience and a unique, mm, I don't know, there's something unique about how you go about doing something that is probably a little bit hard for anybody else to just imagine, magically immediately reproduce. But I also think that there's some things that you do that like as people learn from them, we're seeing more effective products because someone said, oh, well, you know, I'm sure there's a story behind Tinker. Well, I couldn't think of the top of my head, but he's just like, I would really like to be able to do blah, blah, blah. But with Tinker, I can only do X, Y, Z. So, but I think the reason I asked the question I did is because it feels like there's an element of like, what, what is enough? What satisfies us? What makes us motivated to do the thing? And it lines up a little bit the idea where like a lot of times people say, don't announce your, the thing you're going to do, because once yeah. you announce it, you're going to lose the the motivation for it. And I've always tried to follow that. Okay. Cause I was going to yeah. ask, cause I wonder if it's like one of those, well, maybe that's a test or so. So for you, you're like, I want to have the thing before I start talking about the thing. Yeah. I am. I never tweet about anything secretive that Laravel is working on until it's basically done. Yeah. Like until okay. I'm extremely confident that the product is going to launch. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, I mean, I think I've pretty much done that with all of my products. I don't okay. think I really talked much about Nova until David Hempel and I were literally together in Arkansas pairing on like the final push of yeah. getting, huh. getting that product over the line. So, yeah, I don't really get into like talking about things I'm doing beforehand. I do think there's like some science behind that, you know, that people have yeah. shared online about how once you talk about something, you kind of get that fix of actually having done the action. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I try to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that a lot of people talk about in the startup world is validation, where you kind of like take your idea and you talk to other people and say, would you like it? Would you pay for it? But even they're often saying, saying someone saying they're going to pay for the thing and actually being willing to pay for the thing is not actually always the same thing. So I understand that whatever answer you give works for you is not saying those people are wrong, right? You're only talking about what works for you. But like once you've had an idea um, you start building this idea, you build the idea to a point where you're going to be happy with it. And then do you just take signups? Is there any other steps in the process for you of like actually going from the idea to just taking paid signups? Is there any aspects of validation? Are you shopping it to a small group of trusted friends or anything like that? Or you're just kind of like, Hey, this is what I'm doing and we'll see how it works once I release it. I definitely do send, you know, the rough idea or screenshots or whatever to 
a group of friends or even beta test. Um, okay. People helped us beta test forge a few people, um, yeah. less than 10 probably. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't do a lot of, uh, validation in that way. Yeah. And I do think it's, it's hard to get people to pay for things. You know what I mean? It is yes. like the product has to be pretty ambitious and pretty good. Like if I think about how many SaaS products do I actually pay for? It's pr- not a lot, you know, yeah. even here at Laravel, we pay for DigitalOcean, we pay for Pusher, we pay for a few bug tracking services or whatever, but it's not like there's, we're not paying for 50 SaaS yeah. products here at yeah. Laravel. So it's actually not that many, I think, that people are using on a regular basis. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think another thing, you know, to talk about is just sort of the market and following you have for launching products, which yeah. obviously we have here at Laravel a, a huge audience of people that are ready to look at whatever we put out there. Yeah. And I think if you're new to launching a product, there's probably a lot of preliminary groundwork to be done in terms of actually building an audience. And I don't think there's a great shortcut to that, Yeah. except for providing a lot of value for free in the months yeah. to maybe even years Years. leading up to you launching a product. And I know that kind of sucks to hear, (laughs) but when I think about, you know, all of the people that I know that have launched something successful, it's usually preceded by many, many months of valuable tweets, valuable blog posts, maybe valuable videos, valuable podcasts. They're providing some sort of something. It could be just pure information, could be an open source package, could be anything that provides value for end users for free first, typically. Yeah. If you're sort of an indie bootstrapper type of person, I think Mm -hmm. it's pretty, it's at least useful to have that audience to launch something to. Yeah. And I think a lot of people kind of want to shortcut that and it's because it is a lot of work, but I think it's actually very valuable if you can do that. I also think that it's it's pretty tough to continue doing that if your only goal for doing it is to gain an audience for launching a thing. So that's another piece of it is yes. like if you're like all I'm doing is committing, you know, this huge portion of my life to building an audience so that hopefully when I make a product one day it'll actually be successful, you're gonna burn out in that really fast. And I think that's it's, people, and it's sort of disingenuous. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The people I've seen both be most successful are the people who say, I honestly want to do this because I want to help people. And I hope it's going to help me. Right. And I, the thing is, those things can be true at the same time. And there's this book. I don't know if you've read it, but it's uh, how to win friends and influence people. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, I've read so, it. Yeah, okay. So I, book. I read it and immediately assigned everybody a Titan to read it um, because it's how I look at the world, but I didn't know how to say the words for it. And one of the things he basically says in the book is like, and really it's the, the whole premise of the book is if you genuinely help people and you figure out what they need and you figure out how to help them, you're also basically going to be able to figure out the the way that, you know, you can like get benefit. I don't, I don't know. I'm saying it sounds skeezy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I it's mean, like, I think it's just a really great book on relationships in general. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I do think everyone should read it. I, I, agree. I think about that book a lot, actually, Yeah, um, hmm. on a pretty regular basis, just in my interactions with people, um, just about stuff like how you can never win an argument, you know, which is yeah. one point of the book. Yeah. Someone has to lose. And yeah. usually you always lose, actually, mm-hmm. um, because even if you beat the person in the argument, there's sort of this underlying resentment yeah. on the yeah. other side. The relationship is a little bit damaged, um, even if you win. And if yeah. you lose, of course, that sucks because you lose. So yeah, yeah, you uh, lost yeah. either way. Everyone should read that book. It's a great. I book. agree. <laughs> yeah, 
And I, I'm going to, I'm going to try again, but I agree. There's so much more than what I'm saying here. Everyone should read it, but there's some element in it of how you can honestly be receiving benefit from a relationship, you know, and not necessarily financial benefit, but like the, you, you can be altruistic and want what's best from someone, even in a relationship where there's a transaction or where there's benefit from having the relationship. And it walks that line in a very careful and honest way, in a way that I think that, like, again, if we're talking about building an audience, I think that the people who build an audience purely for transactional benefits, right? Like, I'm going to put these tweets out and we get, they don't, they, they burn out, they stick around, and often it feels fake. It feels dishonest. And it doesn't, maybe always every day, but you're going to hit those moments where you're like, uh, this kind of makes me feel skeezy. Whereas there are other people who are like, I want to help people, but they're also open to me saying, and I also understand that helping people builds my audience and that audience may be a benefit to me, but I'm doing this because of helping people. You feel better about them because you want them to succeed and you like them. And you don't feel like they're, being dishonest about what they're doing. And so I just like people like, like Aaron, you know, Aaron Francis is someone who has had a recent rise in the Lervo world in part because he talks openly about the ways that like, he's a good guy and trying to help people. And also it is benefiting his career to do so. And those things can both be true at the same time. And so I appreciate the honesty of just being like, you know, you're going to have to want to do it for good reasons or you won't stick around with it. However, also doing it for good reasons can benefit you, right? Like you just got to be the type of person who wants Mm -hmm. to do that. So audience, what do do you think about the next place I was about to go was, what do you think about recurring billing versus one-time purchase in terms of deciding what to build? I think, you know, a lot of my stuff has been subscription-based. We have a couple one-time purchase things like Nova. No, that's not even true. Actually, Nova and Spark even are yearly payments to receive a year of updates. Yeah on Composer, but I think someone like Adam Wathen at Tailwind has kind of shown you can actually build a pretty successful business with no subscriptions at all. And I think that's actually a little bit easier to launch than a subscription-based service, especially if you're selling to kind of the individual developer and you're not selling to big big businesses or or corporation. And those people are happy to pay subscriptions. Um, Yeah. I think they even prefer subscriptions. Yeah, I I think so. Uh, but the individual developer much more likely, I think, to make a one-time purchase and just be done. And you yeah. can kind of get away with charging a little bit more, maybe. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I you know, as you're thinking of products, don't lock yourself in. I think to the subscription model. There's a lot of actually really successful people that are selling just one-time purchase products and making bukus of money doing that. Yeah. Um, Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I actually was going to take us there eventually, so I'm glad you got there. There's there is an interesting... There, we think of it as a dichotomy, right? It's either a SaaS where you pay every single month or every single year, or it's a one-time purchase, period. And there's definitely... It's worth naming the difference because, like you said, people have a much lower barrier to entry on a one-time purchase. But if you think about the types of things we traditionally think as a one-time purchase, there's a difference between one-time purchase or a one-time purchase... That if you want updates after a certain amount of time, you're going to have to go back and pay more because that's not quite a SaaS, Mm -hmm. right? You can continue using this thing as it is forever in perpetuity. You will get support and updates for one year. And I think that's a really nice in-between space. It doesn't work for everything, but it works, for example, for software. Like uh, I think with Tinkerwell, you buy Tinkerwell, you get a year worth of support, and then you can keep using that app for the rest of your life. Or you can pay for updates. And I think Ray might be the same way. And I really like that format because as someone who's like, I don't want to lock into your SaaS platform and I can't keep using my thing if I don't, well, you know, like it feels kind of gross, like a car where if you don't keep paying a subscription to the car manufacturer, your car stops working. 
you know, that would make me feel uncomfortable. What about a car where after a year, you know, you don't get GPS updates? Well, we're all used to that, right? Like, you know, the car keeps working for the rest of your life, but there's certain features that if you keep wanting to have it, you're going to have to pay for those. It just feels so much better because it gives us the agency to be able to opt into that update later, but know that we we have not now committed to XYZ for every single month or all of a sudden that initial spend is just kind of useless because we can't use the thing anymore. I know it makes yeah. a lot of sense for for software to do that way. Do you think there's any way for info products or info products just a one and done and that's just kind of it? I can't think of any examples of a you know, an ongoing info product type of thing. Because you know? like Tailwind I mean, UI, people, what, what is the billing model in Tailwind UI? That's all lifetime. Yeah. So when they release new stuff, yeah. you just get new stuff. Oh, but they added, didn't they add yeah. something that cost more like the, uh, one of the different kits or something like that? I think I'm right about this. You can buy individual templates if you don't have, I think they call it Tailwind All Access. That's okay. what they're sort yep, of like lifetime, all uh-huh. access pass, and you get everything that they do have done and basically will ever do. And mm-hmm. me and Adam have talked about this many times. How Got it. I kind of think that's a scary idea for, for them. But, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I guess the idea is CSS and, and front end in general is such a huge market. There's probably new customers all the time to yeah. keep the revenue coming in theory. So, yeah, I mean, they're working on a new application UI kit, which they've been pretty pretty publicly talking about lately. And and if you're an all access subscriber, you know, my understanding is you get access to that on day one when it comes out. So yeah, that's, that's a one-time purchase business as far as I know, pretty exclusively. Yeah. Did they end up, I don't know if it was like e-commerce or something like that, but I feel like at some point there was going to be the possibility that one of them was going to cost extra, but did that maybe not end up happening or? I'm not sure that ever really materialized. I okay. think when, uh, you know, when Tailwind UI came out, there was the idea of potentially different kits like a, a social media website kit an e-commerce kit and yeah i don't think that totally materialized i think the the upcoming react based ui component kit is kind of the okay the upcoming thing well i am on their pricing site and it is like what you said which is you can get all access which is three right now it's 300 bucks one time or you can buy a marketing package for 150 an application ui package for 150 e-commerce yeah. for 150 so so there are different ways to differentiate between individual products versus like a like a longer lifetime thing and then you also got people like laracasts who are subscription models and then allow you to buy like a one-off thing that gives you lifetime which is like you said is scary but yeah, there's a lot of different yeah. ways of looking at this. It is scary, but I guess, you know, in Laracast's case, if they know their average lifetime spend of a yeah. uh-huh. monthly customer, then the math should work out, you know, as long as they charge a little bit that level or a little bit more than that for their one-time purchase thing. Yeah, um, smart. And the same on Forge. Like, I know, you know, kind of the average lifetime spend of customers, but I would be, I would still, I, something in me would still be scared to put that... <laughs> That lifetime uh, pricing out there. Yeah, yeah. Even though it, it may not even be rational from a math perspective, the fear. Yeah. What else do we have to talk about in terms of building products? Yeah. So we had how to come up with ideas for a SaaS, how to build an audience. I think the last thing was about building and shipping. So you had talked a little bit about the last episode about as you're working, how do you focus on quality versus shipping? And, you know, that's something we talk about classically. And then also, how do you find the commitment to finish when you're feeling burnt out? But I, I definitely want to start out with that quality versus shipping. Uh, it's a very common thing that like perfect is the enemy of good or often perfect is the enemy of shipped, right? Like we want to make the thing so perfect that we never want to launch the thing. But one of the things that you have talked about a lot is the desire for something to be really good. And, and the, a lot of the early stories about Laravel are about how Taylor put up this question of Stack Overflow about like, am I crazy for wanting to make every little thing just right with the comments all aligned, everything like that? So 
as someone who is really trying to make really high quality work where everything that's released under your name is really excellent, how do you avoid the problem of never shipping because it's never good enough? I'm not sure because there are things I haven't shipped because they weren't good enough. <laughs> I mean, there's kind of, kind of, I guess, I wouldn't say famous, but in the Laravel lore uh-huh. history, you know, there are products like Laravel Cloud, Cloud um, yep. which I even talked about because it was done. It was totally done. Yeah. You know, designed by Steve Shoger at Tailwind mm-hmm. now. And uh, I wrote the whole back end, but I just couldn't, I couldn't make it compelling enough to where it felt like this is really something different enough and better enough from what we have that it feels worth releasing yeah. same with like laravel beep which i'm still there's something there and i'm gonna okay, come good. back to it one day I'm still here with you so <laughs> but uh that's another product totally finished you know hired designers to build it build the whole back end and when it was done it was just like yeah it's okay yeah. you know but you know maybe it was good enough to release sometimes when i come back to it now i'm like oh wow i should have put this out this looks bad. great yeah. but uh once you're deep in it sometimes it's hard with like forge and vapor I feel like they were just much better defined in my mind of what being Mm. done looks like. I mean, I think that's important to figure out early on. And Mm. it's something we maybe could have done a little bit better job of with Pulse, our our most recent package we put out where we're... I think it's important to define what what does 1.0 even look like um, so that you know you're actually done. Otherwise, you really can just keep going on forever. So I think it's important to sit down pretty early and say, these are the key things that I think make this a compelling package. And this is what needs mm-hmm. to be in 1.0. And we're not going to allow ourselves to be distracted by other potential features because they will come up yeah. um, inevitably. That's wild because that is so, very relevant to client work. I mean, with every single client we have at some point, if we have not defined the initial scope for when it's ready to be done or launched or merged or whatever, it's just going to go scope creep, scope creep, scope creep. And one of our biggest things is like to be able to say the phrase like that's going to go in phase two or V2 or sprint two or whatever you want to call it. Right. So it's very interesting hearing you say mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's a part of shipping products, too. Like, you you know, you have all these cool ideas and you got to be able to say is this idea going to now stretch the time to launch and stretch the time to launch? Or do we have this initially defined scope of what we're doing? Yeah. And I think one thing that I would recommend if you're building products is go ahead and build a basic version of the product all the way through in the sense that people can sign up. You can deploy the product at any time. Maybe it's locked down behind some password or or whatever, Mm -hmm. but the product is actually out there and at least you're using Mm -hmm. it in production. And whenever you're ready to flip the switch, and allow customers in. Huh. Everything is ready. The billing is ready. Everything is ready because I think that makes it a little bit easier to say, okay, this looks good. Let's go ahead and ship it now because if you get to that point and you still have to add all this other stuff, you're mm. going to get distracted again with yeah. all sorts of other things. So I like to kind of set up that, I guess you could call it like continuous delivery pipeline pretty early in the project's process if I can so that it's easy to ship it yeah. when you want to ship it and when the feeling strikes. <laughs> That's great. And and in the Laravel ecosystem, that also makes a ton of sense because when you're doing those core things like billing and stuff, it's easier to do on a fresh install anyway. So it's sort of like, hey, way if, easier. Yeah, because like <laughs> if it, whatever it's going to be, whether it's Breeze or Jetstream and then Spark, you know, throw that stuff on your initial thing, allow people to sign up, laugh because of course nobody's going to have more than one team right now. Of course nobody's signing up right now. But then when that day comes, you don't have to A, figure out how to apply those things to a long built app and B don't have to say like, um, like barely, barely have the energy. And now I have to do a whole bunch of boring stuff. That's yeah, not fun. And it has boring. lots of edge cases and stuff. That's a great idea. Huh? Okay. 
Yeah. And we're, we're getting into the, the kind of the technical side, but I think, yeah, to that point, you don't want to get like to the end of the project and then try to strap on the billing piece at the end and be like, remember, you have to write all this authorization and protection about only subscribed users can do this. And yeah. only if you're on this plan, you can do that. And that is super annoying to come in and bolt on after the fact. After the fact, yeah. Or something like team billing, another super complicated thing to bolt on after yeah. the fact. Yeah, so definitely get that set up early on, I would say, so that yeah. you can continually ship the product and iterate on it. Yeah, so that does touch into the other question, which was talking about the commitment to finish. A lot of people, you know, and every single person, like, probably is fits into one of big categories of like, are you an idea person? Are you an implementation person? Are you a maintenance person or whatever? But if we're talking about someone who wants to be able to build a product, we're going to make the assumption that they have that initial, like come up with an idea, you know, stub the thing out, you know, just build the basic stuff. And a lot of those folks struggle very much with continuing the motivation to actually finish the thing because it gets more and more boring and nitty gritty the closer you get to the end. Are you one of the other types? And if, if you are the idea guy, how do you find the motivation to finish? And if you are the finishing guy, how do you even become an idea guy? Is that kind of person? Or are you just kind of like a little bit of everything? Are you a unicorn? Um, I, I just anecdotally seem to be a little bit unique in that I do finish a lot of the products I start. And yeah. I think, I don't know all the reasons for that, but one reason I can think of or one thing I've observed in other people that build products is they have an idea and I can think of some specific examples actually right now that I, I don't want to like put them out there publicly, but right. generally they have an idea they're super excited about and they do a lot of initial upfront work on a lot of easy tasks. Mm. So I'm going to get, you know, the basic, some of the really basic, simple stuff done first. Yeah. And then I'll, I'm going to tackle some of the harder problems. And I, from my observation, one of the problems with that is you work on the idea for, say, a month on some of the easy stuff. The idea has already lost some of its sexiness in your mind. Yeah. And then you get to some super hard stuff and you're, you're already kind of slowing down. Yeah. And now it's like you're really kind of screwed because mm. you you lose all the motivation on the hard stuff and you, you can't really push over that wall. Mm. I would really approach it totally opposite than that. And yeah. I try to always, like when I built Vapor, I thought of what is the absolute, what's the hurdle on the horizon that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to cross Yeah, the hardest problem we're potentially going to encounter building this product. And let's just do that first. Yeah. Even before we have any UI or anything. Yeah. Um, while you're the most motivated on the idea, you know, try to solve the biggest hurdle. I think it has a few benefits. One, you're working on the hard problems while you're most motivated, like I said. Two, if the problems are insurmountable, you actually want to know that now, not a mm. month and a half or two months from now. Like If it's just generally technically beyond your grasp or yeah. maybe even not even possible given some sort of limitations in the, the tools you're using or, or what's out there technology-wise at the time, I would rather know that in the first two weeks mm. than in the first two months so that I can move on to some some other idea or pivot to you know, some modified, modified version of the idea. So do the hard stuff first. I think that has been something that has assisted me. I'm not sure if it's the only thing, but it is one primary thing that has assisted me in getting things actually to the finish line. Once you solve that hardest thing, yeah. your motivation is actually stronger because now you finished it. You're pumped. We got past this hard thing. Now we just had to add on a bunch of easy stuff and we're good. Yeah. That's brilliant. I really like that. 
and finding the commitment to finish, like if let's say you're at the end of the bike ride and you almost are out of energy and then you hit the really big hill, like you're screwed. <laughs> but if you start the bike ride, you take the really big hill and then the end of bike ride, it's like, yeah, you just got to kind of go downhill for the last mile, like no big deal. Right. So it's like if yeah. you use all your energy at the beginning on this very difficult thing, when you're excited and you're motivated and you're passionate or whatever, then at the end where it's like, now I got to finish, but yeah, you got to finish on this rote stuff that you can do while you're watching your favorite TV show or something like that. I really love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I can think of one situation in particular where a person had a product idea. It was a good product idea. I mean, a great product idea, but they kept kind of dan dancing around the hard part of the idea and doing all these other little things. And I was like, Hey man, you should like, the product is useless. If you don't tackle this hard thing, this is actually the most important part. And you should really try to tackle that you know, yeah. <laughs> while you have this energy. And, you know, I don't think they ever, ever did. And you kind of get bogged down. But yeah, don't dance around like the hardcore part of the idea. Because, I mean, usually the, the valuable things are the hard things, right? Otherwise, people wouldn't be paying you to do them. Yeah. Um, so focus on those early. And this may not be true for everybody. But one idea here is just popped in my head is partnerships are, can be helpful in this direction. So Aaron Francis was building out builtforpulse.com, which is like a directory of all of pulse cards that people create. And it's very similar to novapackages.com, which I made for the Nova um, world a while back. So I just reached out to him and I said, hey, here's, you know, here's the code base for Nova Packages. Let me know if you want to work on it. And we've ended up working on it together. And one of the things that I found is that like he's really excited about writing the code that integrates with, um, with GitHub and downloads the GitHub readmes and stuff like that. And that code exists in Nova Packages, but it's still pretty complicated code and it needs to be done a little bit differently. He's like, I love this kind of stuff. I love this deep nitty gritty backend stuff. And this site's not going to exist without it. I'm like, great. I'll go add tags to the packages. I'll go rework these really rote, you know, UI things. And so one of the things that I'm doing is honestly the easy stuff. I'm doing a ton of easy stuff on the site while Aaron's brain purely just focuses on the hard stuff. And so rather than him doing all this hard stuff and then being exhausted and then have to do a whole bunch of basic database stuff at the end, he's going to finish the hard stuff and it's going to be like, and there you go. You plug it in the system I already built, whereas I, I built this whole system and all the system is waiting for is Aaron's hard work to be done. So there also might be some elements of partnership there where you can, you know, split the tasks and also potentially motivate each other because you finish something and then you don't finish it and you go, and now all this, it's like you finish it and you're like, and everything else is done. Look at that. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. I know that you don't normally work in partnership in these products, although I assume that with the, the more recent ones like Vapor and stuff like that, there's some element where you're building the core but then at some point you hand off some of the work to your team. Is, is that something that you would kind of say makes a significant impact in your ability to ship? I imagine no, because, you know, you've shipped things like Forge and Envoy or Solo. But did, do you notice there mm -hmm. being a big difference working in a team when creating a product versus working on your own? Um, so how I've, I've approached some of these things in the past, like Vapor, I actually wrote myself. Pretty oh, you much did? Okay. You wrote everything. Then. And then, then, and then, yeah, then... At the end, um, Muhammad, you know, our first employee at Laravel came in, kind of helped tidy up some of the loose ends and kind of perform some of the initial support work on that product. I would say over the last year to year and a half has actually been the first transition to where we've actually shipped Laravel packages that I did not write. Yeah. Um, so examples would be Pinnet and Pulse primarily but to some extent volt um i wrote the prototype for volt and then nuno came on board with fresh ideas and we kind of paired up on the end of that but pinnet and 
Pulse, I did not write really a single line of code on either oh. of those packages. Yeah. Pinnet wasn't even my idea, to be honest. It was Tim's idea. And then Pulse was my idea, but I didn't write any of the code. Yeah. And it's a very new place for me to be. But I think obviously, if you want to actually scale out and build a lot of things, you got to have help. And we have great help here at Laravel. So it lets us do more. It helps us ship more. But yeah, most of the stuff up until 20... You know, 2021, 2022, I was writing at least the initial version start to finish myself and then kind of bringing in people once I had a good idea. And you have the benefit of having built apps before. So the people you bring on, you know, can maintain your apps the way you like. They know how you like to write apps, you know. So you, by the time you trust somebody else, you are decade plus into this process of defining how you want to do things. That's something I found at Titan as well, even when not with not products is I in the early days of bringing on employees, I paired with them on everything. I taught them, how, you know, didn't teach them how to code, but like I brought in people who are more apprentice level. And like, I'm like, I'm going to shape you into helping me. And then now I'm at the point where I'm just like, first of all, I trust all these people to write the code the way I want. And even if I didn't, Keith would be there, you know, Keith, my director of engineering would be there. And like, I haven't yet, you know, for years been in a place where I look at a single line of code that gets written in Titan and say, that's not how I would want it. But it took a long time to get there. Similarly to you, like you got a team of people you trust now, but it took, it's not that when someone's right. just getting started, that's not what you start out with. Right. That's not a reasonable thing to expect on day. Right. One. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's the end of my questions other than, you know, something entirely unrelated, but are there any other aspects of this conversation about what it looks like to come up with your own product or SaaS or something that you can charge money from? Did, is there anything we missed? No, I think honestly, that's a pretty good overview from start to finish, you know, in terms of finding your idea, all of my ideas have come through my own problems. I actually really hate to be in that position of like, hmm, I want to build something. What could I build? I uh-huh. like, I don't like that feeling. I feel like that's kind of grasping at straws. Yeah. If the idea is not obvious to me, then I, I'm just not super compelled uh, yeah. to build it or even I don't have confidence that it's even a good idea at all, to be honest, because I'm just kind of made it up out of thin air. Yeah. I mean, okay. I think, you know, Justin Jackson, the one that asked us to talk about this, I mean, he's written actually a lot about business ideas and finding product market fit himself. And I think if people yes. are interested in this topic in general, you know, go dig into some of the prior work he's put out there on this topic, because I think it's pretty valuable. Yeah, And I mean, he's had Slack discussion groups about it. He's written books. He's done podcasts. I mean, he tweets about it. Yeah. Justin not only is brilliant in his own right, but also I think he's a bridge into the like the startup founder ecosystem that exists that a lot of Laravel programmers might not know are out there. So definitely, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely follow follow Justin and see the worlds that he kind of overlaps in. All right. Well, here's the last question of the day. So I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this because I my fiance doesn't listen to this podcast. So hopefully it stays that way. Nobody go tell her, but there's a, my family's throwing her a, and some of her family's well throwing her a virtual uh, shower in a couple of weeks. And I just got to send a questions of like the, what is it? The newlywed game. So they gave me all these questions and they're like, can you answer these? And then during the game, mm-hmm. we'll kind of like see what she, she can get. And I just looked at that. And there was one that I did not know from you that I wanted to figure out, which is it says, what is their favorite movie And it? A favorite movie is tough. I feel like that's a really tough one to do because they're the favorite comedy, favorite what? So I said, I wanted to say in a specific moment, um, Abby and the kids go out of town for something and it is a Friday night. And you've got your favorite drink in hand. It's getting dark. It's cold. You finish work for the day and you just want to veg. You want to sit on the TV and you want to turn on just a movie that you know. Like when you turn on this movie, you can be engaged. You might have seen it a hundred times, but like you just know you're going to have a good time with it. Does that prompt Mm. a movie for you? Two movies come to mind. One would be 
Interstellar. <laughs> um, really? I, I, I like that movie. I listen wow. to the soundtrack a lot as well. Great soundtrack, yeah. What else? It's not I too think, heavy um, for you to just want to sit and watch again? I, I do think that's a little heavy. That's okay. why I kind of hesitated on that a little bit. Got it. But my other movie feels kind of equally weird, which is, would be like Sandlot, which is one of my favorite movies. That's and fantastic. that feels it feels a little weird to sit by myself and watch a kids movie with a you know with a glass of wine or something. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's, but it's a also a kids movie, movie from too. our childhood, right? So there's yeah, that. it is yeah, sure. So it's weird because um, oh, go ahead. No, I yeah, I mean those are the two that just came to mind first. Yeah. I, I realize that I don't have an answer to this question because the only thing I can think of is if my kids were like, dad, what movie do you want to watch? I can, I can tell you in immediately which movie I'd want to watch. But then I'm like, would I watch this without my kids? And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I would. It's Mitchell's versus the machines on <laughs> yeah. Netflix. Oh, well, wow. Okay. It's this weird, quirky coming of age movie with funny family dynamics and robots and, you know, the end of the world. And it's just all, it brings all these things together in a way that I really like. It's a great comedy. And, and so just, I, I, I think I, I don't know if it would be my top. I think if I need put myself out of dad brain, there's probably other movies that I could put, but because nine times out of 10, when I'm watching a movie, it's going to be with my kids. Then that's just what pops to mind. But it's good enough that if, if you're like, Matt, you got to come up with something right now and I don't have a list. Yeah. I go watch Mitchell's versus the machines by myself. I do it. Yeah. I think what makes it hard, I don't know about you, but I just wouldn't, I wouldn't watch a movie by myself. I would just be on GitHub. I think that's probably what it is. Code. (laughs) You know what I might do? What I've found is that like, if I'm alone by myself, what I'm most likely to do is put on a TV show and code at the same time. That I can do pretty easily. Like I do that with Ted Lasso. I do that with other shows. I have some shows that I literally never watched without coding. And like one time I turned one of them on, I'm like, oh, this is not interesting enough to maintain my attention. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, no, I, Friday yeah. light alone, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be coding 100%. Yeah. Sweet. Well, Taylor, it was a pleasure hanging out with you as always. Thank you for teaching us all about, you know, how you've done this. And hopefully this will motivate some of us to go, go build a thing. So yeah, fun times. Uh, the rest of you, we will see you all next time. Thanks for hanging out. See ya.